Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April. And I'm Jonathan. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs uh, important issues and current events, and specifically what white people looking to make a difference can do moving forward. This week, we're going to be speaking with Nick Peterson, who is a theologian, pastor, uh, and critical race theorist. We'll be speaking to him about race and religion, uh, particularly Christianity. But before we get into that, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So this week, I wanted to chat about uh, interactions with people out in the real world about race and racism. So on social media or in person, but a lot of the times what I'm thinking of happens on social media. And it's not trolls. I'm not going to call them that. It's people who are interacting in a in a coherent way on social media, but asking things that are centered in whiteness and in racism and that touch on a lot of um, sort of problematic areas. If you all are listened to our first episode, you'll remember that we discussed uh, FTRs, which are fundamental truths about racism. And we discussed uh, in the first segment of the last episode, five fundamental truths that we're sort of operating under here. What I'd like to discuss today is when you encounter people out in the world that hit on those things hard yes. and have a lot of sort of problematic uh, the ways that they interact with us is sort of in a real problematic way. And so um, I'm intrigued. So this stems from an interaction that I had on social media uh, this past week and that was really troubling to me. Um, it was a post I made about a uh black mother and daughter who were pulled over in Rio Vista, California uh, by police officers there. And ultimately there was, uh, there was some confusion and um, the mother, the black mother and daughter were being ordered to do ordered out of their car. Um, And ultimately the video culminates with the daughter being picked up off the ground by a police officer and slammed to the ground. And so I posted this on social media as of course, an example of like, You know, these are the abuses that we continue to see out in the world. And so, um, someone said something, a woman, you're right. So a woman who I went to high school with, we're going to call her Stacy. Um, she, from time to time comments on my social media, uh, posts and she, and usually in the context of police misconduct, I think she might be dating or married to someone who's a cop. And so we went to high school together in conservative Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So a lot of what she says is, um, is in that conservative vein, we'll say. Um, so what she, her only comment and the only thing she posted was, why do you think they didn't get out of the car when asked? Meaning why didn't the mom and daughter get out of the car when the police hmm. asked her to get out? Right. Um, interesting first question. Right. So, so we, I, I want to, talk about how we might as allies and anti-racism activists and advocates how we might interact with people who approach us like that in the racial context so first uh tell me the problems with her question because there clearly are some it's crazy because her first and only response to seeing this brutal behavior by police officers which I would think elicits an emotional sort of response, how horrible this is, right? That's part of the shock value of these videos. Um, Being slammed on the ground, her first response was to ask why these two didn't comply with police officers. So that seems troubling to me because 
there's no there's zero empathy in that first question. There's zero understanding of um however could this happen to someone? However could someone be body slammed on the ground like that? Um I think it's important to note that I think a lot of white people don't realize how terrified we black people are by police. Um and you know, I can give the example. I, I lived in Boston for a year back a couple years ago and I was pulled over within a month of living there and I was terrified. I was shaken by this. I got home and I broke down because I was so upset by this. So, you know, the answer to Stacy's bad question mm-hmm. is probably in part because they were afraid of getting out of the car Reasonably, and probably yeah. in part because maybe in that state they didn't have to get out of their car legally. But that's sort of beside the point. And so... Well, yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind with me uh, from Stacy's question is that she goes right to blaming the victims as if the reason that this young woman was slammed to the ground was because she didn't get out of the car. That that to me is just initially troubling. Right. Um, The fact that her uh, first instinct is to question how the victim could have changed the attack or could have done something differently implies that the attack was her own fault. When in fact, it's the police officer who slammed her to the ground's fault. It's very much runs in the parallel of, well, what was she wearing? Right. When you hear about right. someone who's woman, been assaulted, yeah, a woman who's assaulted, been assaulted. And the first question is, you know, was she drinking? What was she wearing? As was she in a dark alley? Was she, was yeah. her fault. Right. Yeah, um, that's, that's very problematic. So online, on this post, I commented, Stacy, most importantly, your question is irrelevant to being body slammed by a government official, but they probably didn't want to get out of their car because in many instances, they're not legally obligated to. Ponder what it says about you that this is your question. So that's how I responded. That sounds very reasonable. Right. Yeah. Like, so I tried to, you know, I tried to be as succinct as I could and get across the point that Stacy needs to hear what you and I have just been talking about, which is how problematic it is that someone would respond that way. So Stacy went on to lay out sort of hypothetical question and answer back and forth that she thought that she hoped we would get into. She said, how do you know I wasn't, that wasn't just my first question and I'm asking others I want, is it wrong to know, you know, as much information as I can about this interaction? Um, And it sort of hit me with the, you know, the I'm just asking questions, I'm putting that in quotes, or I'm just playing devil's advocate, I'm putting that in quotes. mindset that a lot of white people approach conversations about race with um and and i think it's also important important to to note because i saw this conversation um yeah she actually gave hypothetical answers to her own questions and laid out quote reasonable responses that she expected from From me clearly she (laughs) entered into this conversation with you know this preconceived notion of what of how you should have responded to her question so i think it's important to note that as a white person going entering into a conversation about race uh, i think this this takes us back to ftr number four it your most important job when you're talking in conversations about race as a white person as a white person is to listen so Stacy entered this conversation. She didn't even hear your response because she already had a response in her head. And she set so, them out. She right. Set out and she the said, this is how you could have responded to me. That in no way uh, implies that she entered that conversation to learn something. She also stated in part of the in part of her response that 
am I not allowed to know these things without you calling me racist? That was her big thing. Will you call me racist? So that's FTR, fundamental truth yeah. of racism. Number two um, is the notion that her, her being called racist is this is the ultimate end all. If right. I called her racist, that would shut down this whole conversation. That's what the sense I'm getting yeah. from this, these questions. And it did end the conversation. And it did end the conversation. Yeah. People um, responded afterward to her response and that was it from her. Right, but respond. just for people to remember with FTR number two, being called a racist is not... When you're talking to to us about this, and and I would hope white people moving forward would apply this, being called that is not this horrible slur. It is a part of living in America as a white person. And so um, that's something that needs to be changing, I think. And it is, and we're seeing that. But for, for purposes of this, that was, of course, the worst thing that I could have called her. And so you can be a really, 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 really good white person overall, quote, good person and be racist. Right. In okay. fact, all good white people are racist also. Right. right. Because they're white in America. Right. So that's not it a doesn't huge... doesn't change your being at the core. That's this right. This is just a fact of life. Right. So I engaged back and forth with her, but ultimately just sort of tapered off because I was, she had come in so hot and was so engaged, was so amped up about what she, how she thought this was going to go. But I was actually happy to see that you replied to her on social media, leaving yeah. a comment. Yeah. I mean... I just responded, you know, similarly to, you know, what we've talked about before, where, you know, when entering a conversation, white people need to be in a mindset of learning. What can I learn from this um, about racism? Um, I think it's also important to mention that when we're talking about race, white people don't get to say what's appropriate or what, you know, how a black person should respond about something. Um it's your job to listen, really. And and it's, you know, as you mentioned, just because you don't get the answer you want if you're asking questions as a white person doesn't mean that's the end of the conversation. One, think about the answer that you actually got and ponder it from, you know, why you got that from this black, from a black person you're engaging with. And also ask yourself, why were you expecting a certain set of other answers to your question? And consider why that, why you might have come to the conversation expecting those things. I'm glad this was on your mind this week, John. Um, I think we see these interactions a lot, and I think it's really important for people to remember that just asking questions or... Quote-unquote. Quote-unquote, yeah. um, Or, you know, sort of playing devil's advocate. If you're not willing to fully engage in the conversation, those questions aren't helpful. Um, Just commenting on something or just asking a question and then you know, retreating from the conversation because you didn't get the answer that you want. That's not what an ally looks like. An ally will listen and keep engaging, even if the response they get is not the one they thought they would get or wanted. So that's what's on my mind this week. After the break, we'll be talking to critical race theory expert and theologian Nick Peterson. said before today we're talking with nick peterson um he's an expert on critical race theory and particularly uh its intersection with religion Uh, nick is ordained in the african methodist episcopal church and is currently working toward a phd so welcome nick Uh, we're so glad to have you here thank you all so much for for having me i'm really excited to to be a part of this production thanks so much um so i think we 
wanted to get started uh, sort of with generally talking about race and sort of blackness in America. Uh, and I think we should focus on America specifically. And then sort of as we move through the sort of historical and factual basis of, of race in America, which you and I have spoke about at length in our, you know, over the years, um, but yeah. I think will be beneficial here. Um, I think we can move to the sort of the intersection uh, between race and religion, if to the extent that you even think it is an intersection. I might be using the wrong word for it, but um, but I hope to move on from there. I was hoping that you could sort of just give our listeners some background about um, whiteness and blackness generally as social categorizations in America and sort of how that started, really. We sort of have, I think people have a good understanding that racism and slavery sort of went hand in hand here in mm -hmm. this country, but I don't think people often think about race by itself um, yeah. and and how, um, where that started or, or, or what the sort of origins were of that in this country and did it just happen on its own or was it an intentional thing or um, who was sort of the, who were the main players in that? So I, I think to, just in general, to have a um, as much of a comprehensive understanding of uh, race and uh, its origins, we have to definitely consider the role of colonialism and imperialism in ordering land across the entire globe. So we know in the 15th century, uh, the the story that we learned in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> I know the song. <laughs> you know, uh, so we all have the postcard and, and you know, the keychain from, from that particular point in history. But I think it's important to note, right, during the 15th century, the age of enlightenment, um, coming into the 16th century, where we have uh, the Reformation and the reformers from Martin Luther to John Calvin and, uh, and Zwingli and others. We also have, uh, during this time period, um, the emergence of the uh, Church of England, uh, which is both a reformed church, um, but also, unlike some of the other reformers, maintains a fairly Catholic orientation in its liturgy. And what becomes interesting about the Church of England is that it pretty quickly starts to persecute those who do not choose to uh, to honor the king as supreme, uh, both mm. as the head of the church and the head of the state. And so while this turmoil is happening uh, for particular groups of, of Englanders, namely the Quakers and also, you know, who we understand as the Puritans and even some of the, the Scottish presbyters, as they are in the midst of suffering, right, in England, the Spanish Empire has figured out how to, to cross the Atlantic Ocean through Columbus and is now sort of discovering that there's land, right, that there's a new promised land uh, right. available. And so as the Americas become a site to expand European empires, it also becomes an opportunity for those who are suffering religious persecution to escape, right, to to the Americas, to North America in particular. Yeah, that's the story we were all told, right, is that that's, you know, our our founding, I'm putting in quotes, founding fathers came here to escape religious persecution, right? That's the big one. Yes, of the big and, 
And the only problem is that there were people who were here, <laughs> unfortunately for those people. Right. And so, uh, yeah, right. a, a number of technologies were necessary to not only allow Europeans to, to settle and, and make home here possible. Those technologies would include everything from weaponry to diseases, but also this budding technology of race and what what really served as the underbed of, of racial categorization uh, was the work that was coming out of biologists of the time period, um, mm. this new field called anthropology, uh, which is the study of, you know, humans and how human culture and communities are formed. And so what happens in the age of enlightenment, where we move toward these notions of empirical, objective, scientific discovery— uh, which allows, right, which creates the necessary conditions for people like Columbus and others to even make these uh, particular voyages uh, on the oceans and, and things like that, even though Columbus didn't know where he was going and lost himself into uh, into the Americas uh, in that respect. But during this time period, right, the scientific discoveries are trying to figure out how to categorize all of human life or all of life period. And with those categorizations, there's an impetus to understand the sophistication or what we are under, what we are at least now trained to think of as sophistication in logic and reasoning. This is to sort of work with Kant's notion of, of human subjectivity, the ability to reason and to have rationality. Um, right. This is also what undergirds conversations with like Hobbes and Locke around liberty, right? Liberty is the ability right. to execute one's agency up on the natural world for the sake of producing capital, which hmm. you have to be a thinking and a rational and a reason being in order to do these things. Am yeah. I hearing you saying that the, you know, the utilizing this sort of, uh, this new sort of technology of race, as you put it, these thinkers were categorizing people of quote unquote different races, whatever that meant, then. So largely people who spoke differently and looked differently in hue and, and custom were different scientific types of beings. Is that what I hear you sort of said? That sort of gave uh, clout to those opinions or those not opinions at the time. They were putting them off as fact. Yes, these fact. are facts that there are different ontological substances that would um, identify and characterize the human races and within that a hierarchy of sophistication whereby reason and rationality are held as the apex of what it means to be human. And then that then gets to be affirmed through people like Hegel as the particularly, you know, Hegel as a German of the right. German race sort of being the, the, the quintessential form and the apex of, of human potentiality. The French take it on through their notion of a civilizing mission that is the purpose of the French uh, as they engage in this kind of imperialism and coloniality or colonial rule throughout Africa and parts of the America to civilize the world. And so this notion of being civilized becomes a way right. for Europeans to differentiate themselves from non-Europeans. Now, it's important so, to note that it wasn't just during the 15th century that that was the first time, you know, people of white skin came in contact with people of black skin. Uh, we know that the dark-skinned Moors had been crossing um, into Portugal and Spain for well over a millennia uh, in trade routes. We know that the Greek Empire mm -hmm. even was a cosmopolitan empire with trade routes that went 
from the Silk Roads that lead into China all the way to the western tips of, of Africa in Ghana, Algeria, and all along the northern and western portions, obviously eastern portions of Africa as well. So it was not the case that Europeans had not been familiar with these uh, folks of different hues, but the scientific technologies and the scientific, quote-unquote, developments that emerged during the Enlightenment gave sort of a means by which uh, Europeans were able to justify their ways of being in the world as the best ways of being in the world. Um, So was there any sort of attempt, even if it's fake and just for show, with these new technologies and philosophies, was there any attempt to, quote, discover a new land or a new group of people or go into these different countries or places? You mean like embrace them? Was there any sort of idea of learning first about them or even engaging with them in a civil way before taking over? Even if it was just for show, like, hey, look, we did this and tried and now we're going to civilize these people these people like it do we do we see any attempts at all the hard part to 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 sort of reconcile is that very little of this understanding and approach was intended to be malicious and so we oftentimes conflate in our current our modern uh, understanding of racism uh, we typically sort of allow that to just be situated in the kinds of uh, bigoted hate field vitriolic sort of racism that characterized a particular phase of racism uh, in America, right? So it's what we saw during the civil rights movement with white police officers sicking, you know, German shepherds and Rottweilers on black bodies. And and this notion of that there's a pure kind of hatred that's undergirding, you know, how this, you know, how races are understood. But historically, it was very much connected to the desire and the belief that people were doing real scientific work. You know, we had scientific disciplines like phrenology, which was the study of the size of people's heads to determine um, what kind of, you know, uh, capacities, right, people had, uh, mental capacities people had based on the size of their head. There were all kinds of, you know, measurements, right, because this is what empiricism is about. It's about sort of like setting aside the notion of, you know, just what we think or feel about something to actually take these objective measures to make a determination as to these differentiations. And so in this way, African languages were not considered to be languages because they could not be recognized with the same kind of phenotypical characteristics of, of European languages. It was sort of like the, the Kool-Aid was that empirical study allowed us to really know the truth about the world around us. And because we were just doing empirical study, we were now immune from the kind of religious, faith-based, uh, and I just don't mean religious as sort of like creedal religion, but this notion of just like an unction of that, this is just what this is. Um, right. mm-hmm. and, and so it's very much, it very much just becomes part and parcel of doing or of understanding right, science uh, in this way as just giving us the truth about the world. And the truth about the world is that there are people who are civilized and there are people who are savages. And then there are people who we aren't really sure if they're quite human, (laughs) if they've really evolved to the state of being fully human. 
And because we understand ourselves to be ordained by our God to 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 right. steward well the earth, it is now our task, right, to civilize. It is now our task to um, to train and to govern and to you know to make as best use as we can with the resources, be they you know human, chattel, cattle, or otherwise. And so there is very much an impetus to be good stewards of the earth by categorizing right all of the living organisms in the earth and then organizing them in ways that most effectively build and replicate what we understand civilization to be. Wow, okay. So we know Christianity and religion generally is huge within the black community, be it Christianity or Islam um, or a number of other uh, religions. What was it about the the way that it was sort of taught and sort of put upon black people as they were brought to this country from Africa during those next few hundred years? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is in terms of Christianity, uh, what's really interesting, especially about Christianity in Latin America and in the Caribbean, is that the, the Catholic Church, particularly the Jesuits and the Franciscans who, who come to these regions, come with an understanding of the indigenous peoples as being capable of becoming Christian. And um, with that, there is a desire to missionize and convert them to Christianity. Um, and so what, what becomes interesting in Latin America is that there are forms of Christian and Catholic practice that are specific, highly specific and provincial to Latin American uh, contexts. Um, and that's, that persists even, even to this day because of the ways that missionaries in particular uh, engage those communities. What's interesting about um, particularly uh, black folks in America, that's not the case often for black folks in the Caribbean, is that in the Caribbean and in South America, in Brazil, which has the largest black population outside of Nigeria uh, in the world, many of those people, uh, many of the African slaves who were brought from the West Coast of Africa were able to stay within similar language communities and so as they were in plantations or on plantations in and throughout the Caribbean, Latin America and South America, they were actually able to maintain significant portions of their Dahomey, you know, religious practices. And this is where we get the hints of things like voodoo, Santeria, as well as, you know, Candoble and these other sort of indigenous African in the diaspora sort of religious practices. So how do we get from, you know, these slaves being brought over, some being able to maintain, you know, a, a group of people around them who spoke the same language or had the same uh, religious or spiritual background, how do we go from, from that, keeping that authenticity, I guess you would call it, to uh, eight out of 10 black people identifying as Christians. How does it make itself um, appealing? Yeah, so what becomes unique about the United States is that the Southern slavocracy, right, in the United States was such that they wanted to do as much as possible to not allow people from similar African contexts to be able to communicate with each other. So that's one piece, is that there's a lot of mixing and selling and trading such that people aren't able, because they don't want revolts. Um, mm -hmm. And when you have people who 
even if their dialects are slightly different, but they can still communicate with each other, the ability that they have to plan a revolt and or, you know, just basically uh, cause some form of haywire in the plantation system is just too great. The yeah. other piece is that during the, the early part of the 18th century, um, the United States passed a law that says that they cannot bring any more slave ships to the American coast, which now shifts the focus from, you know, I can just go down to the auction block and replace a slave to now we actually have to home grow slaves. Mm. Um, which to think about that, it means that there has to be now a level of of subsistence allowed that would allow for an impregnated enslaved woman to actually be able to carry a baby who can then live to become of age to provide labor. Right. right? Um, so so there's a, a way now that there's a particular sort of shift in how it is that we allow slavery to, to persist within the United States. It, it yeah. wasn't Christianity and, and actual, you know, scripture used in that process of the slaves that were that were owned. I was always taught that, you know, you there are there are scriptures that say obey your master and obey your, you know, be a servant and this and that. And those those were sort of, depending on who you ask, sort of perverted to apply to the master slave white black relationship. Is that right? So the thing uh, about Christianity and, and religion, particularly Christianity, is that there has not been a time in human history that we know of where slavery hasn't existed, particularly during the time in which the New Testament was written, right, this first century B.C. It is believed that over 80 percent of the known population was enslaved, right? It was so pervasive uh, during the New Testament period that Paul could not even imagine a world where slavery didn't exist. And one of the texts that comes out is, is Paul writes um, to Christians at the time period who are enslaved to their Roman and Greek uh, owners to obey your masters, right? Mm. Um, to treat them as if they, they are the Lord. And it's just that slavery is just that ubiquitous. Now, we sit at a point in time where we have a very particular understanding in the American context of what constitutes slavery. But slavery is still at work, right, in our world for people who are underpaid and overworked. Um, you know, we, we don't have to travel very far with even in our own communities or, you know, uh, to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe uh, whose conditions are conditions that are on par with what slavery is about, the exploitation of labor um, and the denial um, of a particular form of subjectivity based on somebody's particular social status. You know, so so in that way, it's not a hard sell within a Christian imagination or a Judeo-Christian imagination to to understand that slavery has a place in society because it has always had a place throughout the known world, um, you know, throughout the, the known history of the world to, to be present. And so, you know, in that respect, it was not a difficult thing to find scripture and religious texts that would support right, slavery, and support a particular way to treat slaves. You know, within the Ten Commandments, there is the, the, the commandment to not um, covet 
you know, anything that belongs to your neighbor. And the things that constituted the neighborhood's property included his wife, his children, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass. You know, it, right. it was a whole host of things um, that are in the Ten Commandments that are about, like, what you don't covet. Right. And so all of that indicates that, like, your neighbor could own other humans. Right, right. Uh, so a, a couple of things. One has to do with the fact that the narratives that characterize uh, the full arc of the Bible story, uh, the Bible stories, um, all lean in a currency of the underdog overcoming. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a, a gross simplification. Uh, but if you, you know, when we listen to uh, what we would call like Negro spirituals, the songs that enslaved Africans, um, you know, wrote and or sung within their communal context that articulated their faith, um, it is often the case that they were able, even from hearing, even in hearing these texts from their owners, they were able to hear about a God who had an understanding of justice that was oriented toward the least and the lowest. Mm. Um, that they were able to hear a story about this man named Jesus who was born from some little poor girl called Mary who didn't see herself as worthy to even be visited by God and that this Jesus did nothing wrong, just went around trying to help people right. and be nice right. to people. And right. the folks who had power killed him. And so there, there's a way that these narratives that they, to hear about the children of Israel who had been enslaved for 400 years, working for right. Pharaoh, building Pharaoh's houses, building Pharaoh's temples, building all of these things for Pharaoh, and he did not want to let them go until God sent somebody like Moses uh, right. along the way. So the stories of God's deliverance, the stories of God's judgment against those who were not concerned about the least and the lowly, I think resonated with our ancestors, with, with African ancestors, above and beyond the poor witness of Christianity that they may have witnessed from the white folk, which is so, to say I'm, that we, we almost have to talk about Christianities in the plural, as opposed to sort of like this unified, you know, right. uh, one iteration uh, of, of Christian understanding and practice. Uh, and right. so enslaved folks would come up with songs that would say, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And the masses would love to hear these songs, but they didn't <laughs> understand that there was some double entendre. Y'all talking about heaven. But it don't right. mean that you're going there. Right, um, right. So that's a good sort of transition into what I wanted to ask you next. And I was hoping you could talk about this because this is sort of what grinds me up today. So, you know, we hear about, especially in the world of, as it relates to race and politics uh, and Christianity, especially in this country, the sort of religious right, quote unquote, as it's known to be, uh, be called in this country. So, you know, the notion that they're, just a big picture. There are black churches and there are white churches in America, Christian churches, all very similar in terms of their religious texts and, and teaching. Um, how How is it that the, these different sort of sects of Christianity as broken apart by race and by, um, by, by what other, whatever other categories, how is it that that is sustained and, and the sort of, Based on what you've told us here today, there are some sort of glaring uh, hypocrisies and sort of the way that is practiced as it relates to race and loving people and treating people with kindness. And, you know, how is it that those, you know, hypocrisies are sort of allowed to 
stand and just be these clear ways that the church presents themselves to the world. You look at a, it, the mass in a certain church and it's all white. You know, my thoughts automatically go to, okay, well, so people are just bad. People are horrible and they're continuing to ruin this. Um, and that's just been allowed to be an accepted part of, uh, of how we're going to operate. Is that, is that all it is? The way from how you see it? Yeah. So I, I think I'll come at that sort of sideways. Um, oh, that's I a big question. One of, yeah. One of the things that we've, um, that I think has happened in response to racism and the way that racism has created a hierarchy in our Western uh, and especially our American context, is the notion that uh, a full-on integration would be the apex of a witness against the kind of segregation that racism works so hard to achieve legally, theologically, socially, educationally, um, right? all of these things. Um, I think there are a couple of, 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 of things that are probably necessary. One is that it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort to produce the racist world that we live in. Mm. Uh, it's not an, an, an energy-neutral undertaking, right? So it took the laws, it took police, it took violence, it took, um, it, it took a whole set of resources, technologies, energies um, to actually create the conditions of possibility, right? The conditions of inequality as a possibility that we now sort of still have to contend with. Um, and so the idea of a, um, of a kumbaya, right? Where we are dissolved um, of those differentiations into, um, you know, communities of integration um, I don't think does enough work to acknowledge how much work how much work it's taken for us to get where we are. The second part of it is that there were ways of being differentiated communities that existed before racial categorization uh, became present, which is to say that if you spoke my language, I was more likely to be around and speak with you than. Um, than folks who don't speak my language, right? So this notion of affinity um, and the, the, the propensity that we have to be in places um, where we share sort of like cultural understanding, um, I think is something that persists, um, especially for communities and people groups who have often been targeted, marginalized, um, ostracized, and or othered um, in, in any way, shape, or form. And so with that, we have to understand that there are spaces that function as safe spaces for particular communities and contexts. Um, and it has often you know, been argued that the Black church sort of functions as this safe space for Black folks, right? So in the Black church, there is no white gaze. So Black folks can sing how they want to sing. They can sway how they want to sway. They can pray how they want to pray. They can preach how they want to preach. Now, that doesn't mean that within that space, they don't have their own forms of hierarchy and, um, and, and problematic ways of relating to each other. But it's a space where the white gaze um, isn't determining how people move through that space as it would be uh, in another context. Um, and so the other side of that is you take the church, the AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, 
the African Methodist Episcopal Church is one of the only Christian denominations in the world that emerged not because there was a theological difference, right, a stated theological difference, but because there were a group of black people who were praying at the altar and were drugged from the altar and told that they had to go up into the balcony uh, if they wanted to stay for worship. Um, it emerged not because black folk weren't willing to play with white folk, but because white folk didn't want black folk to take over their congregation. And so if we in part want to sort of look at what allows for there to be, you know, a thousand white folks sitting in a white church and, you know, a thousand black folks sitting in a, in a black church, it is not the case that black people haven't been willing to be in white spaces. It has often right. been the case that white folks have not been willing to surrender themselves to black leadership, to surrender themselves um, to, to, to black spaces or to surrender themselves to blacks as equal so much as blacks as those who provide services, who provide goods, who provide protection, who provide, you know, fill in the blank for a whole host of other things. Doesn't that make, does, to me, that, that sort of diminishes then the power of Christianity as a whole. I mean, if you can take a religion and say, you know what, we're going to have our own thing. You guys do that. We are not going to mix here. Um, racially. Racially. Are we, are we preaching the same thing still? Are we, has the religion been changed? I mean, of course, to a certain extent and any different church or, you know, sect you go into, it's going to be a little, little different, but does that not sort of fracture Christianity? Oh yeah, I mean, but it, it, it's never not been, um, and so that that these, I mean, the issues that that uh, function as means of division within the church have persisted from like day two of the you know the starting of the church. Uh, it even starts. We even see hints of this in the gospel where people are trying to figure out like, are we supposed to follow John? Are we supposed to follow Jesus? Uh, I think, unfortunately. Uh, what Christendom has given us is that it's allowed the church to hold a particular kind of social power as natural when it isn't natural. There are ways that we we sort of that we we can't afford to give Christianity a pass as this great religion of you know, of 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 unity um, and of uh, of community making. Um, because Christian, being Christian doesn't dissolve us or absolve us from all of the complexities of being, you know, uh, of being human. Uh, and so even as Christianity had had the privilege in the past of touting itself as like, ha, you know, <laughs> this wonderful thing in the world, uh, the truth is that it's never not messy. Uh, there is right. no point in Christian history where it is not utterly messy uh, to the point of jeopardizing based on human actions, you know, the witness of, uh, of the church. Uh, so, so the history is messy. The past is messy. The present is messy yeah. and the future is messy. So, okay. Right. So now you know what I'm going to ask. So it's asking about the future. So what, so, and, and we'll sort of start to wind down here a little bit. What do you say? What do you say to the, to the, you know, the white Christian who finds himself very happy with this faith, happy with a lot of the sort of the moral aspects of it and the way that it sort of instills these sort of moral tenets within your life, um, but who goes to, to, to church every Sunday and is in a completely white congregation 
but who also this individual cares about race and race issues in America. How do they, um, you know, uh, April and I were fortunate to grow up in a in an intentionally interracial Christian non-denominational church in the South. It was very strange. It was very deliberate. But those types of places don't really exist in in large scale around the country. So what do you say to someone who's who is taking part in this racialized structure that exists within Christianity? Not saying that it's a new thing, but it is a thing. Yeah. Um, what do you say to that person that cares, that wants to fix the systems as they are in place in this country from a race perspective also? Yeah, I think um, one of the 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 places uh, where I think uh, work is important um, is to recognize that we are never not in formation. Beyonce tells us to get in formation. Right, she told us. We are. She told we, us. <laughs> we, we've always been in formation. The question is, what right. formation are we in? Um, right. We none of us grow up in context where we are not being acculturated and enculturated into particular practices and ways of being in the world. And the complexity of this is that not all formations require our active agency in order for them to be formative, right? That there are, that there are formations that are happening that are utterly passive to us, where it's not like I'm making a conscious decision but it's become part of the habits that shape who I am, right? And so one of the things I think that we, we, we have to be willing to do um, is we have to be willing to, to, to engage in a kind of reflexivity that helps us to see what are the formations that I have been a part of that have helped me to see who I am in the world and that have blinded me to these aspects mm. of who I am in the world. Um, so yesterday I was on with the, on the phone with a friend, uh, and while he was on the phone with me, he got pulled over. And we're here in Atlanta, Georgia. And so he got pulled over in Atlanta, and as soon as the officer came to his window, he did what we would call turned it on. You know, mm. hey, uh, yeah. I am... Good evening, officer. You know, uh, <laughs> you know yes, and this sir. Is we, this is we meaning black people. I don't know that we ever have said out loud that you you're black and your friend is black i'm assuming you're talking about yes where the story's going okay right right (laughs) and so um you know he's like you know good evening officer i mean there's a there's a a vocal cadence that changes you know i'm going to reach in my pocket to grab my wallet you know right and that's that's where my id is uh it's in my left pocket uh and so there's a particular you know all of these i'm narrating everything that i'm doing um and he got pulled over just having a bad tail light. His tail light was out. Um, but his awareness of the way that his black body, right, positions him in relationship to the entire world around him, be it the officer, be it, uh, you know, a person on the elevator or what have you, his awareness is something that he's had to become consciously, right, able to manage um, for the sake of being able to navigate, right, the world around him. Um, And so what what that means and what race is doing, like one of these things that race is doing is that it is making, you know, non-white bodies conscious of their bodies in ways that white bodies don't have to be conscious of their bodies. And so I think a a good first step is to start to unpack what does it mean that I move through the world not having to be conscious 
of my body and how my body is in space, or even more drastically, that the only time I have to be conscious of my body is right. when I feel my body to be unsafe. And then to enumerate the context in which your body is considered to be unsafe. Is your body unsafe when you walk into the bank? Is your body deemed unsafe when you walk into a grocery store, when you walk into a department store? Is your body deemed unsafe when you are in the presence of police? And as you start to recognize that there are all of these ways that my own set of habits have helped me to not see my body as unsafe, right? To not see my body as, um, as threatened um, in all of these different spaces has something to do with how race has structured my being in the world. And I haven't had to be conscious of that. That's a kind of awareness that I think starts to at least help us recognize just what race has made real for those whose bodies, you know, aren't, uh, aren't white um, in, in, in the classical ways that we, we understand whiteness. Um, and you multiply that over and over again as we think about all of the spaces where human bodies are at movement and are at work um, and are at play and are at whatever. Uh, and I think that that, that that starts to at least uh, help us to recognize um, to some extent just how controlling, right, and how powerful racialization projects are, you know, in our modern world. Um, so I think that that, that that would probably be a way that I would, that I would sort of push, push forward. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Well, Nick, we really appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the, uh, taking the time uh, to speak with us. And I, I sincerely believe that you've given our, our listeners a lot to think about. So we, uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon, I guess. Keep up the good work. time for our action item. Um, as we said last week, we'll be giving a practical action items that specifically white people can do uh, to help make a difference in ending institutional racism, but also individual racism that we experience every day. Uh, so this week's action item is, think about the last time you said a black person that you knew or, you know, encountered was, quote, different. What do you mean by that? different from who? Other black people? Remember that there are infinite different types of black people. We are just as unique as white people. Surprise. So next time you connect with a black person, try not to categorize them or think about them as a specific type. Accept them as they are, as they present themselves to you as an individual and try not to compare them with other black people that you know. So that's our action item. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Be sure to tell your friends about the podcast, and if you really want to help us, uh, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Also, be sure to check us out on Instagram at Black and Podcast. That's B-L-A-C-K-A-N-D Podcast. Production assistance by Kate LeBray. Our theme music was written and produced by Fifth Child. You can check out more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's the number five, fifthchildmusic.com. Until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and keep, keep asking, asking questions. questions.